0: Well, we want to make a start to our Bible class this morning, so let's uh, just still ourselves before the Lord, please, and unite our hearts together, and then we'll come to the reading of Scripture. So let's just unite together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give Thee thanks and praise once again for the privilege to come into Thy house on this Thy day. We thank Thee for the first day of the week, a day which reminds us of the new creation. We thank Thee for the One who rose from the dead, and we rejoice in our Savior and Redeemer. We thank thee, Lord, for the Spirit of your Son, which is sent forth into our hearts, and we cry, Abba, Father. We thank thee, Lord, that we are the living, and we're here to praise thee. We were once dead on account of our trespasses and sin, but we thank thee for the quickening we have received by grace. And We thank thee that we are alive in Christ Jesus. And, Lord, we come this day to worship thee, and we come to adore Thy name, to gather round the things of God, to turn from the world. And Lord, we come to seek Thee and to have a blessing from Thee. We pray that Thou would help us, Lord, in the adult Bible class. Remember our Sunday school. We thank Thee for the teaching staff, our superintendent. We thank Thee for every boy and girl that's brought in in the bus, every parent that brings their children in. And we pray, Lord, that You would bless uh, the truth of Thy Word. And, Lord, the catechizing of our children, we pray, O God, that it will instruct them and build them up in the things of God. And, Lord, for those who are not saved, that even this day that thy word as that two-edged sword would pierce right into their heart, bring conviction, and also bring the healing balm of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember our junior and senior Bible classes. We pray for them. Pray for our young people. We pray, O God, that you will establish those that are thine, strengthen them, and equip them, O God, to live in this present evil age. for those, O God, who are not yours and have no writ of the matter in them, we pray that even this day that, Lord, they'll be deeply troubled. Lord, we hold these classes for, Lord, not for our own sake or for our own glory, but to see Thee work and to see Thee glorified in the lives of each and every one of these children and young people. And so, Lord, we look to Thee. Bless the online ministry We pray that Thou would take the class, O God, and use it for the glory of Thy name, for the strengthening of Thy dear saints. In a day in which, O God, there's many assaults and attacks against us, we thank Thee, Lord, we can stand in the power of the Lord and in Thy dear strength. Lord, help us now and shut us in with Thee. And We pray that Thou would give unto me, O God, Thy Holy Spirit, and help me to speak as Thou would have me to speak. For I pray this all in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. Let's turn this morning, please, to Jeremiah chapter 36. Jeremiah chapter 36 this morning, please. And we're going to read some verses off this chapter. It is one whole narrative of a particular account, um, but it would be just too long to read, so I encourage you even to read it this afternoon. So Jeremiah chapter 36, And we'll just read some verses of this chapter together. So commencing at at verse 1, so let's hear the word of the living God. And it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a scroll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah." And against all the nations from the day I speak unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Barach, the son of Neriah, and Barach wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the LORD, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, "'I am shut up, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day, and also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities.'" It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and return one from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. Barach, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And then jumping down to verse 20, verse 20, And they went in, to the king into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishamah the scribe, and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to fetch the scroll, the roll, and he took it out of Elishamah, Elishamah the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the ears of the king, and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house. In the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan. And Elahiah and G- uh, Jem-Ariah uh, had made intercession to the king, that he would not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. In verse 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll, and the words which Baruch uh, wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it, all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. In verse 32, Then took Jeremiah another roll, and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And there were added besides unto them many like words." Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of His truth to our hearts. Now, we were thinking last week about the interpretation of Scripture, uh, the background and the basics. We considered how the church has come to understand the interpretation of Scripture and the two major methods in how to approach it. On the one hand, we have the literal, grammatical, historical method, and on the other, the allegorical approach I then gave eight basic hermeneutical principles concerning biblical interpretation. And then I finished with the point that though it's good to have these principles in place, which help guard us from error, making attacks to mean something that it was not intended to mean, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has given unto the church to guide us into all truth. While the infilling of the Spirit does not make Bible study non-essential, it does make it effective. Now, today we're going to look at another truth concerning the Scripture. From the very beginning, the Word of God has been under attack from the devil. In the garden, he approached Eve, and the first words he spoke to her were, Yea, hath God said? He put a question mark over the Word of God and placed a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. And ever since Satan has, through the ages, continually attacked the various doctrines concerning the Scripture. It's inspiration, authority, sufficiency, clarity, inerrancy, and interpretation. But not content on making attacks against the doctrines concerning the Scripture, the devil has also attacked the Scriptures themselves, seeking to physically destroy them. Yet we still have it in our hands today. It is testament to the fact of the indestructibility of Scripture. And that's what we're going to think about this morning, the indestructibility of Scripture. Now, the Bible is a very ancient book, and its antiquity is a wonder. It is a marvel that the Bible has remained unto the present time. see, there's relatively few books. They survive the decade in which they're printed. Very, very few survive a century. Their makeup is such that the elements, they tend to destroy them. Age and water Rot them, insects eat them, careless handling destroys them, ink fades, covers pull loose. but the book of God remains. It was interesting last night, it came up on my YouTube feed, um, five years ago the Mormons, they were refurbishing the, the temple in Utah. So they were, and they were taking what they called the capstone off that Mormon temple, upon which the angel Moroni, a golden angel of the or golden statue of the supposed angel Moroni, was placed. And inside that, it was a 150-year-old capsule, and they had put in there documents from the past, uh, the Book of Mormon, and other such uh, things, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, and all their literature. And they opened it up. And they actually found that they were all destroyed. All of them were destroyed. They encased them in wet concrete. And, well, any man here knows, and maybe the ladies too, well, wet concrete, it sweats. And that, those books just took in all the moisture and all the words that was on it. The photographs were there. It was just blank sheets of paper. And yet what a contrast this is uh, to the Word of God. The last book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation, was written 1,925 years ago. Portions of the Bible, of course, are much older. The first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses about 1500 B.C., making them over 3,500 years old. Amid the wreck and ruin of ancient literature, the Holy Scripture stands out like the last survivor of an otherwise... Extinct race. And you know, when we bear in mind that the Bible has been a special object of never ending persecution, the wonder of the Bible's survival, well, it increases. Every engine of destruction that human philosophy, science, force, and hatred could bring against a book has been brought against the Bible, yet it stands unshaken and unharmed today. Not only has the Bible been the most intensely loved book in the world, but it's also been the most bitterly hated. Not only has the Bible received more veneration and adoration than any other book, but it's also been the object of more persecution and opposition. The enemies of Christianity, well, they've realized that the kingdom of God, it could not exist without the seed of the kingdom. And therefore, they have concentrated their efforts against Christianity in the direction of destroying the Scriptures. Now, why do men seek to destroy the Bible, the Scripture? Well, the Scriptures are light, and men love darkness rather than light. The Word convicts them. It shows them how they truly are, totally depraved, guilty, deserving of God's wrath. It also reveals that man is absolutely powerless to do anything to save himself, and that's a blow to his self-conceit. It's a book that glorifies God, and it puts man in the dust. And that's why sinful man hates the Word of God and wants to destroy it. And the very fact of the Bible's continued existence is an indication like, uh, that, like its author, it is indestructible. Indestructible. Its survival is testament to the very fact that it is the Word of God, and that God has seen to it that His Word has not perished from the earth because He has willed that it will abide for ever. And you know, this is one of the claims which the Bible makes of itself, that it can never be destroyed. The abundance of copies of Scripture in the world that is now available, that's, well, it's abundant proof that it is made good on its claim. In many passages, the indestructibility of the Scriptures is pronounced. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, we read, All flesh is grass, and all the glory thereof is a the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord abideth. Forever, And that was a quotation of the Apostle from Isaiah chapter 40 and the verse 8. The grass will earth, the flower feedeth, but the Word of God shall stand forever. The Lord Jesus Christ made the same claim concerning the Scriptures in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. He says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And when the heavens are passed away with a great noise, and the elements are burned up with a fervent heat, the earth and the works therein burned up, the Word of the Lord will yet remain. The Scriptures teach that they must, they will remain until time is no more, even through the judgment. For by the Word of God men shall be judged, as the Savior tells us in John 12, 48. He that rejecteth me, and receiveth not my sayings, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I speak the same shall judge him in the last day. The Scriptures clearly teach that from the time the Word of God was put in written form until the judgment, they shall never and can never be destroyed. Now, even though God has purposed that the Scripture will endure, This does not mean that man has not attempted to destroy it. As is the case, the will of sinful man is opposed to the will of God, and his actions against the Scripture bears witness to that fact. And what I want to do for the rest of the Bible class is to take as a starting point this account that we have read here in Jeremiah 36, and trace briefly through the ages the field attempts to destroy the Scripture. And I trust that will encourage you because, well, this has always happened. Yes, they attack the doctrines of the Scripture, not only the doctrines contained in the Scripture, but the doctrines of the Scripture, but they also attack the Scriptures themselves. And yet we see the indestructibility of the Word of the living God. And that should encourage our hearts. So let's think about Jeremiah 36 here as we think of it as a starting point. Just to go through, really, the narrative here, it's said that at this point, it's been 22 years since Jeremiah was called to be a prophet. He has been given many messages and preached many sermons to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And even though the prophet was rejected by the people, just as the Lord had told him at the start of his ministry, Jeremiah did not stop preaching. He was determined to fulfill the task that the Lord had given unto him. Now, God at this time, in chapter 36, gave Jeremiah a very direct way to speak to the king, Jehoiakim, and all the princes of Israel, even though the prophet himself was not allowed to go into the house of the Lord. Now, Jehoiakim, he had a godly father, King Josiah. He was a man who affected great spiritual reforms in the nation. And you know, that was a result of how he viewed the Word of God and the impact it had on him. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we read that the book of the law was found in the house of the Lord, and it was read in the presence of King Josiah. And in verse 11 there of Second Kings 22, we read this, "...and it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law, that he rent his clothes. God was merciful to King Josiah, because his heart was tender, and because he humbled himself before the Lord when he heard what God's Word had to say. Jehoiakim, well, as Josiah's son, well, he had to know about all of this about the reforms and the impact that the Word of God had upon the nation at that time, and yet he did the opposite when God's Word is brought to him and read in his hearing, as we see in this chapter. Now, we read in verse 2 here, Jeremiah 36, that the scroll which God commanded Jeremiah to write down was a collection of everything that the Lord had told him up to this point. And there is an example here of the inscripturation of the Word of God. Jeremiah, he dictated to Baruch, his scribe, and Baruch, he wrote it down. Jeremiah, as I mentioned, well, he was banned from the temple. And no doubt that was because of the preaching that he had already done there. It wasn't palatable to the taste or pleasant to the ear. And that in itself was an attempt to gag the Word of God, to to stop the preacher, to stop the minister, to stop the prophet. But Jeremiah, well, he had (coughs) uh, a plan, as it were. He picked a day. He picked a day and a place where the Word of God would have the greatest impact. And he sent Baruch, and he sent them to Jerusalem, to the temple, to read it to the crowds on a festival day. Now, the intent of God in all this was clear. And what the Lord says to Jeremiah in verse 3. Here was the intent of the Lord. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin." The Word is the instrument through which conviction is wrought. And God's intent was reiterated in verse 7. Look with me at verse 7. It may be, They will present their supplication before the Lord, and will return everyone from His evil way. For great is the anger and fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. And here we see once again the amazing depths of God's mercy. These people had refused to obey Him for a long, long time. They had pursued their idols and their sin. They denounced His prophets. And yet here is still an op- another opportunity to hear the Word of God and repent. Now, this, sh- this initial reading of the Word of God had a tremendous impact. There was another fast proclaimed when we read on down, and, and we, we skipped over some verses— And John Gill says this occurred two months after the first reading. So there's really two readings here. The first reading had a tremendous impact that we could say the elders, the leaders of the nation, they called for another reading of Scripture. They called for a fast. And this solemn assembly was called that all the people might hear the Word of God. And you know, that is something we long to see in our days that the Word of God would have such an impact upon the people, even just a simple reading of it in their ears, that they would tremble at the Word. And yet this is God's intent, God's purpose, for the Word of the living God. Now, after Baruch, he read the scroll in the temple the second time, Word is sent to the leading officials, and they have Baruch read the scroll to them in private. And in verse 16, we have the response. We didn't read it, but we'll read it now. Now, it came to pass when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one and other, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. And then they begin to question Baruch concerning, as it were, the process of inscripturation in verse 17. And he makes his reply to them in verse 18. And his response, it increases their, fea- their fears, for they knew full well by this point that Jeremiah was truly a prophet of God. He was a mouthpiece of God through uh, the man through whom God spoke, and they had treated him so shamefully. This had brought deep repentance upon the people. Now, knowing that Jehoiakim would try to kill Jeremiah and Baruch, they directed them to go away and hide. And wanting to preserve the scroll, again an indication of how they viewed its importance and also the king's wickedness, they laid it up in the chamber of Elishama the scribe. And they go into the king and rehearse the words that they have heard before him. They don't have the scroll this time, but they go with word of mouth. But the king, he calls for the scroll to be brought to him and read. Jehudai, well, he reads three or four leaves. And that's enough for the king. For either he, that is the king, or Jehudai, at the king's command, we read, Cut. Cut with the penknife. We read then in verse 23, And cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. When the king and his crony They heard the word of God. They were not afraid, as we read. They did not rend their garments. And that was simply an outward sign of the inward rending of the heart. The king had a seared conscience, blinded eyes, and deaf ears. And even though Elnathan and Delaliah and Jemariah, they implored him, they beseeched him, they made intercession that he would not burn the scroll, he would not hear them, as verse 25 tells us. The king wrongly divided the word of truth, literally cutting it to pieces with a knife. And Jehoiakim, he thought he could nullify God's word by burning the paper it was written on, but he wasn't even finished there. As the princes suspected, the king, well, he commanded his men to take Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But we read, we read in the end of verse 26, the Lord hid them. The Lord hid them. And isn't that wonderful? The Lord has done that for other men like, like William Tyndale, who was hid by the Lord long enough in Europe for him to translate the New Testament into English. And the Lord here protected His servants because His purpose was for them to rewrite the scroll with some additions, as we read in verse 28. And there we see God's preservation and progressive revelation of His Word. Severe judgment was passed upon Jehoiakim for his sin and for his treatment of the Word of God as we can read there in verses 29 to 31. You know, today there is still the spirit of Jehoiakim. For those who want, there are those who want to cut out of the Bible, the things they do not like, or else they want to destroy it altogether. One man, he made the comment, I am opposed to modernism, because, like the cane that cuts out of the Bible with a penknife of destructive criticism, all things not acceptable to the natural mind. And yet, no matter how hard they try, and no matter how many knives of so-called science and philosophy and textual criticism they take to the Scripture, God's Word is indestructible. Man can cut it, can burn it, can censor it, can outlaw it, can trivialise it, and can do everything humanly possible to eradicate it. But unlike the grass that withers well and the flowers that fade, the Word of God it lives forever. There was only a short time. We're going to move on in history. This is a starting point. It was only a short time after this that Jehoiakim, he died in the siege of Jerusalem. And his corpse is believed to have been thrown over the walls and left to lie to rot in no man's land between the city and the besieging Babylonian troops. And this is what happens to the men who reject the Word of God and try to eradicate it. God deals with them. Now, this ushered in the period of Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, followed by, followed by Darius of the Medes, after which came Cyrus, who established the Persian Empire. And towards the end of that empire, the end of Cyrus's reign, that the struggle with the Greeks began, and then this gave rise to, the, uh, gave rise to Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've heard of him. Now, after Alexander the Great's reign, which ended in 323 B.C., the Greek empire was divided into four segments, and the Jewish people, they fell under the control of a remarkably evil ruler whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus was known as the madman, and he launched a a, a persecution against the Hebrew people. A one aspect of his vendetta was an attempt to destroy the copies of the Jewish Scriptures. His relents were especially cruel. For one thing, he forbid the Jewish religion to be practiced, and this applied to Jewish dietary laws, Sabbath observance, and even circumcision. There's an account of how one mother was strangled with her infant boys because she had them circumcised, on the eighth day. But going still further, Antiochus, he ordered that all the copies of Hebrew Scriptures be confiscated and destroyed. Anyone who was caught with a copy of the Word of God was to be executed. One ancient document had this account. And they cut in pieces and burnt with fire the books of the law of God, and every one with whom the books of the Testament of the Lord were found and whosoever observed the law of God, they put to death according to the edict of the king. The historian Josephus, he comments upon this event. And if there were any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed, and those Jews with whom they were found miserably perished also. But Antiochus' plan backfired, for it was this very persecution that generated more intense examination of the divine writings. And out of this circumstance, the genuine books of the Old Testament canon were formally separated from the contemporary, spurious documents which feigned inspiration. God used a fire of persecution against the Scripture to burn up the dross that had crept in amongst the inspired books. The Word of God was attacked hundred of God's people were killed. The city of God was devastated, yet the Word of God survived. And that brings us into the period of New Testament history. When Christ, the living Word, appeared, and we know how many times they tried to destroy Him before He gave His life as a ransom for the many. Now, special revelation was finished in the decades soon after. Soon after, Christ was crucified, but the attacks against the Word of God continued in the following centuries under Roman emperors. For many years, Christianity was outlawed by the Roman government. From the time of Trajan in 98 AD until the time of Constantine around 300 AD, virtually every one of the Roman emperors was opposed to Christianity. Now, it's true that not all of them tried to suppress it, but few of them encouraged Christianity in any way. Many of their efforts, we have to say, was directed towards destroying the Bible. And one emperor of note in this respect was Diocletian. And he reigned from 284 A.D. to 316 A.D. Now it was said of him, by Eusebius an other historian, royal edicts were published everywhere commanding that churches be leveled to the ground and the Scriptures destroyed by fire. Diocletian, he went on to say that if one, copy, if one had a copy of the Scriptures and they did not surrender it to be burned, if it were discovered, they would be burned. Furthermore, if any should know of one who had a copy of the Scripture and did not report it, they also would be killed. Now, during this time, many copies of the Bible were burned. And you know, we need to remember, and this struck me, that this was before the invention of the printing press. And so these were copies of Scripture that were laboriously and carefully written by hand. Written by hand. It wasn't that you couldn't go down to some Bible bookshop and just pick up a copy of Scripture off the shelf. It was because of this severe persecution. Multitudes denied the faith, and they did surrender their copies of the Scripture. Yet there were many more who bore the horrible tortures, and they refused with their latest breath to surrender the Word of God. Now, after this edict was enforced for two years, Diocletian, he declared, he boasted, I should say, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. And so elated was he at his achievement that he ordered a medal to be struck, inscribed with these words: "The Christian religion is destroyed, and the worship of the gods restored." But had he completely read the earth of the scriptures as he claimed, well, history tells us that his successor Constantine, he was one who was sympathetic towards Christianity. And he requested, when he came to power, copies of the Scriptures to be made for all the churches. But surely after Diocletian's campaign and his claim that he had completely obliterated the Word of God, well, not a copy could be found. Well, it was said that within 24 hours of Constantine offering a substantial award for a copy of the Scripture, that 50 copies of the Bible were brought to him. And so, we could say reproduction of them or writing them out again continued. The Word of God remained even through the days of the Roman emperors. Now, the Bible has had to survive not only the persecution of its enemies, but has also had to weather the opposition of its so-called friends as well. Though some historical revisionists, they attempt to exonerate the Roman Catholic system of efforts to suppress the Holy Scripture, the facts are undeniable. While imperial Rome fell to the rack of the ages, papal Rome rose to dominance in the Middle Ages. And with its aversion to the Word of Light, and love for people authority, the Roman Catholic Church ushered in the dark ages upon Europe. During this time, the Bible was kept from the common people and languages which were not known and spoken by the public. And those who were found with Scriptures, or who were found translating the Bible into common tongue, were severely chastised and punished by the Roman Catholic Church, often ending in death. The Catholic Synod of Toulouse of 1229 forbid anyone to possess a personal copy of the Word of God. And when the Protestant Reformation began, sola scriptura was the rallying cry. Valiant men and women, they began to translate the Word of God into respective languages. And Rome responded with vengeance. Vengeance. Men such as John Huss and John Whitcliffe, well, they were condemned to death. Whitcliffe's remains were unburied, burnt, and his ashes were spread over the river Swift. And through it all, more and more copies of the Bible were confiscated and destroyed or relegated to the monasteries to be overseen only by the faithful of the Roman Catholic Church. The fourth rule of the Council of Trent which ran from 1545 to 1563. It stated that the indiscriminate circulation of the Scripture in the common vernacular would generate, and I quote, more harm than good. Therefore, those reading are possessing the Bible, and again I quote, without permission, may not receive absolution from their sins till they have handed copies of the Scriptures over to the ordinary or over to the clergy. at this time, thousands of copies of Scripture were burned. It is said that of the estimated 18,000 copies printed between 1525 and 1528, only two fragments are known to remain. Such was the devil's opposition and desire to destroy the word God of God. But in spite of all that, the Bible lives on. It was A.W. Pink who said, just as the three Hebrews passed through the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, unharmed and unscorched, so the Bible has emerged from the furnace of satanic hatred and assault without even the smell of fire upon it. Now, a byproduct of the Reformation and the rediscovery of the Scriptures was an emphasis upon the use of the individual mind for, for personal Bible interpretation as opposed to the dictums of the priesthood. Now, while this attitude may have appeared to be admirable, some took it beyond the bounds of legitimacy. And, you know, the movement concerning this, really that the emphasis was put on the individual mind for biblical interpretation— well, the movement was distinctly identified when really a, Ger- a man, a German man by the name of Johann Schelmer, began to argue that the biblical events must be judged in the light of human reason and experience. And so the reality of Christ's miracles was called into question, and Christ's deity was denied, etc. And this is the German rationalism of the 18th century that you've heard me speak and mention before. Now, in France, Rationalism found its voice in Francois Aurier, widely known by his pen name Voltaire, and I'm sure you've heard it before. So rationalism began in Germany, it moved across then into France, and it was popularized popularized by this man called Voltaire. He was a deist, and he produced several volumes brimming with hatred for the Bible. And no one in Europe at that time did as much to destroy faith in the Word of God as Voltaire. France rejected the Scripture. It was said that in Paris a copy of the Bible was tied to the tail of a donkey, and dragged through the streets to the city dump where it was ceremoniously burnt. But it's interesting to note that history records that from that time, the government of Rome, or sorry, the government of France, has fallen 35 times. An unusual number. When men reject the Word of God, there is no stability. And surely we are seeing this in our day and generation. There is no stability. In government, when the Word of God, the objective foundation upon which a nation should build its life and order its laws, is rejected. Voltaire predicted that within a hundred years of his death, which happened in seventeen seventy eight, the Christianity in the Bible would be swept from existence and pass into history. Yet over two centuries have come and gone. And today, rare is the home which possesses a copy of Voltaire's writings, while many a home is adorned with the Bible. Voltaire's efforts and bold prophecy to destroy the Bible with his philosophical reasoning and rationale, at failed just as miserably as his unbelieving predecessors. In fact, within a hundred years, the very printing press that he used to print his literature was being used to print copies of the Bible, and his home was used as a storehouse for Bibles printed by the Geneva Bible Society. This is just one example of God's divine irony in the affairs of men. Now, across the Atlantic, around the same time as Voltaire, a man by the name of Thomas Paine was trying to do the same thing, eradicate the Bible with rationalism. He arrived in America from England in 1774, encouraging the colonists to declare their independence. It was in 1794 that he wrote his book, The Age of Reason. I'm sure you've got a copy of that at home. I very much doubt it. And that book was an attack on the Bible, an orthodox religion. And though he confessed belief in God, his book, the age of reason became known as the Atheist's Bible. He too made a bold claim, and I quote, In five years from now, don't forget, that was 1794, in five years from now, there will not be a Bible in America. I have gone through the Bible with an axe and cut down all its trees. Ten years later, Thomas Paine's moment in the spotlight had come to an end, and few remembered him or his works, even though he was still alive. It was said of the last few years of his life, they were spent as an outcast, and he is reported as saying before his death, I quote, I would give worlds if I had them, had the age of reason never been written. All our men have made similar claims men that you've probably never heard of nor have read their works, men such as Bob Ingersoll, an American agnostic who once held a Bible up and boasted, in fifteen years I will have this book in the morgue. Within fifteen years, Ingersoll was in the morgue, and the Word of God lives on. It is futile, For man to try and do that which is contrary to God's will, God's purpose, the Bible will endure. It is indestructible. It will abide forever. And therefore, it's the best foundation to build one's life and eternity upon. I want to finish this morning with a poem attributed to a man called John Clifford entitled, THE ANVIL OF GOD'S WORD. Last evening I paused beside a blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring, the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with the beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he, then said with twinkling eye, The anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so I thought, The anvil off God's word. For ages skeptics blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, The anvil is unharmed. The hammers all gone. We have a word That is indestructible. And no matter what men try to do, the Word of God will live and abide forever. In all the changing scenes of time and all the the fluctuations that go around us, I'm glad we have a Word that has stood the ages and that man and the devil and hell cannot destroy. I trust that this will encourage your heart. I know we have gone through history. We have the principles there, the verses there that teach us about the indestructibility of the Word of God, that the grass willeth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of the Lord shall stand forever. And there's not much more we can expand on that. It's quite clear what it means, what it says. But it's good to look at history and see how this has been proven time and time again. And you and I still have the Word of God in our hands. Let's bow for prayer and let's commit our way to the Lord and give Him thanks once again for what we have considered this morning. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice for the indestructibility of Scripture. We thank Thee, Father. We thank Thee that it's came to us. You've preserved it from generation to generation. And though there has been no book that has been hated as much As the Bible, we have it today in our hands, in our mother tongue. Help us, O God, to continue to preach the Word and spread the Word, to get the Word of God out among the people. Oh, for the impact that the reading and the hearing of the Word of God had in the days of Jeremiah, when he sent a scribe up to the temple just to stand there in the court and read it in the hearing of the people, to lead them to call a fast day, to call a great assembly, a solemn assembly, that all the people of Judah would come and hear what the Lord God would have to say. Lord, we do lament. We see it in the open air. We see it in churches that are emptying, O God. People have despised, rejected the Word of God. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee for its intent. We thank Thee for its power. And we pray, O God, that Thou would work conviction in the heart of the people as they hear the Word, as they read the Word on a poster at the side of the road, as a gospel tract is handed into their hand, whatever it might be, we pray, O God, that I would bring this nation again to the book. Lord, they've tried to destroy it with their philosophical reasonings, with their laws, their edicts, and whatever else they plan and scheme but we thank Thee that it remains today and shall forever remain. So bless the Word to our hearts. Lord, we think about this morning meeting as we'll gather around uh, the, the preaching of the Word. Lord, I pray that You'll open our hearts to the Word and the Word to our hearts. We ask this all in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.